Good morning, church. We will be, not surprisingly, continuing in Luke. So open up your Bibles to Luke 6. While you're opening, I'm going to talk a little bit about family rules. In baseball, baseball is interesting because every single ballpark has sometimes some specifically different rules. So what's a home run in one ballpark might not be a home run in every ballpark. And I've been thinking about this in terms of our families. We have sort of similar rules in each of our family institutions, you could call it. So my wife and I, Amanda, have four teenagers, three high schoolers, and one in college. And over the years, I've realized that some of these family rules are spoken, some are not spoken, like some are just rules that just sort of you grow into, this is just how we do things. Sometimes maybe some of my family rules came down from my family's family, some of ours came from my wife's family, but they're rules that you just sort of say, hey, here's just sort of what we as the Oaks do. This is just what we do. And sometimes your kids go to other people's families and they find what those families do is really strange. It's not like what they're doing is wrong or improper or sinful. It's just not the same way that we do it. And particularly now, so in our family, we brought in almost 10 years ago my two sons. They were adopted into our family. And so we almost had this sort of process 10 years ago where we were trying to almost like explain the family rules because you had new people coming in and it was really, it was crazy because they didn't even speak English at the time. So you're trying to explain family rules to two little boys who don't even understand your language. And it, it was just this interesting season. And the family rules are everything from, do you wear shoes inside or do you leave them at the door? Right? Do you, how, how do you, what do you do for dinner? Do you hold hands when you pray or do you not? Now, with teenagers, and every single parent in here with teenagers is going to agree with this, I don't think I ever talk about a family rule that doesn't have to do with a cell phone right now. That's like every, and that's where our kids will say, oh, we are the strictest family in the world because this about a cell phone. And then I guarantee there's other families, our kids, many of their friends are in our church. I guarantee there's other families in this church that think, we as the Oaks are crazy loose with our rules about cell phones, right? That's just sort of the, the cell phone technology. I don't know what parents talked about 20 years ago with teenagers. There must have been nothing to talk about. It must have been so easy to parent in the 80s. <laughs> Had to be. We're talking about this because the more that I've thought about this passage, the more what I really see is happening here is there's one family rule that Christ is giving us. So let's go to it now, let's ask the Spirit for help, and let's see how we can apply that one family rule and see what we can glean from it in our own lives. So it's Luke 6, starting in verse 27. Luke 6, 27. Let's ask for the Spirit to help us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we need your help not only to just pay attention uh, but to understand your word and specifically to apply it to our own individual and family and cultural context. Um, so even as we read your word, I pray that your spirit would be at work and specifically as I attempt to explain what I believe you have led me to think about this passage, we need the spirit's help. So humbly we ask for that now. Amen. But I say to you who hear, 
love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. So the family rule in this passage is quite easy. It's very clear. If anything, actually, this, this passage, when you first read it, seems like it's a bunch of different commands. Do this, do this, do this, do this. But really, it's essentially one rule, one command. Love your enemies. Then it has multiple illustrations and even applications of what that looks like in real life. In Jesus' day, what does it look like for you to love your enemies? Let me give you illustration, illustration, illustrations. There's anywhere from four to seven different illustrations depending on how you link things together. And so it's, it's interesting and it's important that we understand what's being said and then we'll try to do exactly what Jesus does and illustrate it and apply it to our lives. Now, the whole context, the whole sort of umbrella I'm standing under is this family rules, and that's helpful. So there were two things in Kenny's sermon last Sunday that I found extremely helpful as I prepared for this sermon. The first one is the reminder that in verse 20, at the beginning of this sermon, Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples. So the, the, the context of this passage is speaking to followers of Jesus. That's going to be particularly helpful, particularly towards the end of this passage. There's some stuff in here that can kind of feel like works righteousness. Do this and you'll earn the Father's love is what it looks like. But it's helpful for us to realize, no, this is already spoken to believers, followers of Jesus. The second thing that Kenny said that was incredibly helpful, I'm sure it was just as helpful for you this week, was the key exegetical point that he made that Charles Edward was the middle name of Chuck E. Cheese. Hopefully that really stuck with you all week. If you, I know that Eric Twisselman and I have thought about that one a lot this week because we laughed hard at that last week. But here we go into this particular passage. And I will be honest, when I first got this assigned to me, oh, it's over a month ago, I spent a week thinking about, I can't wait to talk about who are our enemies. And I had, so, I, I had a whole sermon prepared about who, who should you consider your enemies to be? Because right now in our culture, there are many voices telling us who our enemies are, if we're willing to listen to them. There are many voices saying, if this person doesn't look like you, they should be considered your enemy. Or if they don't vote like you, they should be considered your enemy. Or whatever else, if they don't blank, you should consider them as your enemy. And I had so many thoughts, I had so much that I was working towards that. And the more that I started working with the text, it's actually a good example of why we should start with the text instead of our own ideas, right? The realized Jesus isn't at all interested in defining who our enemy is in this passage. He just says, love your enemies. 
there might have been a disciple saying, wait, 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 who are our enemies? And maybe part of that is that's going to become very evident later in Jesus' ministry and particularly later in their own lives. Their enemies will become very evident to them. But I generally think that the reason Jesus is not really that interested in it is because it really doesn't matter whoever they are, love them. Or even whoever you perceive them to be, love them. And so I had to just take that chunk of the sermon and throw it on the editing floor. And I'm glad to do it because I want to line up with what Luke and Jesus want us to talk about. So the who, the the sermon is essentially organized by questions. Who, what, what was my fourth one? Oh, uh, why and how. I don't have any wins going on here. But the who is essentially over because there's really not a lot of who going on. It's just a matter of love your enemies. But the vast majority of this text is concerned with the what. What does it look like to love our enemies? That's the thrust. That's where we're going to spend our time because that's where the text spends its time. What? Verse 27, I say to you who hear, love your enemies do good to those who hate you. There's a very first at the textual reminder of what Kenny helped us with, that this is a family conversation. This is a family meeting. I say to you, disciples, those who hear, reminiscent of if you have ears to hear, right? If you're listening to Jesus' words, this is for us. This is for you. Maybe you're here and you're not in the family. Maybe you haven't placed your faith in Jesus. Maybe you haven't believed in the gospel. We invite you to do that. But this set of passages is primarily instructed as family rules. Love doesn't mean uh, work up within yourself an emotive attitude or feeling towards these enemies. Right? Love here is very action-oriented. We're going to see it. It's really the case throughout the entire Bible, specifically the New Testament, but in this passage we're going to see it that love here is do certain things, act in certain ways, right? That's what love is. Love is action-driven. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. It's important and helpful, I think, to recognize that in this context, Luke and Jesus, Jesus is preaching against a perceived teaching of the day that was just contrary to the point that when Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount records what Jesus says, Matthew says, Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall Love your friends and hate your enemies. Now, that's not a biblical teaching. That's not an Old Testament teaching. But it was a teaching that was pretty common in the day. Some Jewish leaders were teaching we should love one another and hate our enemies. So when Jesus comes along and he says, no, 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 you should love your enemy, there is at least some people listening to that saying, wait, that's contrary to what I've been taught by the religious leaders. So it's, it's sort of ringing in their heads in a very different way that it's ringing in our heads. It's ringing in our heads in a way of like, I know I've heard this before. I don't exactly know how to do it. I'm not sure I'm really going to love this. But, but it's not like, whoa, what are you saying? This is crazy. Whereas in the original audience, there would have been a little bit like, this is contrary to what not only my sort of selfish, sinful heart believes, it's contrary to what I've been taught. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Luke specifically has a a, a flourish of this more so than some of the other gospel narrators. So John talks a lot about um, love one another by this you will know 
the world will know that you're my believers if you love one another, all the way through John 13 and, and 1 John itself. But Luke specifically sort of emphasizes this love of enemies in a little bit different way. It's sort of the, the beautiful tapestry that we get with the authors of the Bible. So Luke alone is the one who tells us that on the cross, Jesus prays and says, forgive them for they know not what they do. So we get in Luke an example of Jesus loving his enemies. Luke, who wrote Acts, tells us Stephen prayed something very similar after he was murdered for his belief in Jesus. Don't hold this against them. So we see this sort of emphasis from Lucan theology to help us to understand there's something interesting and important for us to not miss about loving our enemies. So the primary teaching is clear. The primary lesson, the primary command of the passage is, I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Let's just pause real quick. And, and it's sort of, before we kind of run through the rest of the illustrations and some of the applications and some of the interpretive difficulties, and let's just pause and think, how are we doing at that? And that, that question could be geared specifically to me. How am I doing at that? How do I do at not fostering loving feelings towards those who I perceive to be my enemies, but actually doing loving things towards those who I perceive to be my enemies? And then the, the next question could be further out is, how do we as Grace Evangelical Free do that? Or maybe even, how do we as American Evangelical Christians do as that? And maybe, how do we as the worldwide church do at that? And I think that the answer to that might be sobering. Just this week, I was reading uh, about a very little-known political, uh, uh, someone who's running for office. It's, it's, it's not one of the names that you've heard. And um, calls himself a Christian. And in an in a, uh, interview, he said, our people hate the right people, or they hate the correct people. This is a, a person who follows Jesus. Say, my voters hate the people that deserve to be hated. And then someone else followed up on this, and they, there was a further interview, and they asked for clarification from the, the PR people that run the campaign, and they sent an email back out that said, I've got it here, deliberately Xing out some of the, uh, the details. Candidate X, that's not what it says, but Candidate X strongly believes that these kinds of people deserve nothing but our scorn and hatred. That's literally doubling down, right? <laughs> boom, boom, scorn and hatred. Who deserves scorn and hatred? Opponents. People who, I, who do not agree with me. What do they deserve? Hatred. I don't think Jesus would agree. It's pretty clearly Jesus doesn't agree. Pretty clearly we have someone taking a, a political and a public stance, even while they take upon themselves the name of Jesus, that is completely in opposition of the teaching of Jesus. Completely. It's frustrating to me. It's not only frustrating. Um, at the exact same moment I'm reading about civil unrest in Ethiopia, a country that my wife and I are very interested in because that's where our sons are from, and there's, whether you call it a civil war or not, there is genocide occurring in Ethiopia right now. 
There is a tribal, regional factions. In fact, uh, this week alone, the UN has said uh, a travel ban going in and out of Ethiopia. The United States has started to remove and extract its citizens from Ethiopia. It's probably going to be the next sort of international war that we all start hearing about in the news. And Christianity Today, three months ago, had a very, because this, this, this conflict's going on, it's been going on forever, but the most intense part of it's going on for one year. Christianity Today, about three months ago, did a really interesting article where they were interviewing Christians, because Ethiopia is, is a complex culture that has a, a lot of uh, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Christians, Ethiopian Orthodox, um, Muslims, and a smaller set of evangelical Christians, primarily that are Pentecostal, and to the point that the evangelicals are called Pentes. So the Christianity Today article is asking Christians what they think about this sort of war. And many of the Christians are saying, well, I think those people are getting what they deserve because of a very complicated and a very long, elongated history of cultural aggression and horrible war crimes being committed on both sides. Once again, it's a a claim that I can understand, but it's directly in opposition to the teaching of Jesus. So let's let that sit, because that's what's been sitting on me as we try to enter into this and say, okay, Jesus, let us not fall into this trap. Because that's the trap, right? My enemies have done X to me, therefore I'm justified in doing X to them. That's exactly the opposite. That's exactly the mindset that Jesus is fighting against here. And it makes it difficult. It's a family rule, but not all family rules are easy ones or fun ones or light ones. Some are hard. In fact, towards the end, we're going to see it, it might be impossible apart from the grace and the mercy of our, our Father. It is impossible apart from the work of the gospel and the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So now, we've got the big picture. Here's the command. Here's the thing. Love your enemies. Now we have a series of illustrations, and now we're actually going to sort of spend some time looking at the text and kind of making quick comments about each of these illustrations that we start to get moving through, starting in 28. Essentially, it's Jesus saying, hey, love your enemies. Here's some ways that you love your enemies. 28, bless those who curse you. Someone, If someone utters an angry statement against you, you bless them in return. Pray for those who abuse you. It's very hard to hate someone and pray for them, right? I've heard that stated before. Uh, Amanda and I, um, pretty early in our marriage, uh, were privileged to spend one year outside the United States in the United Kingdom. And, and there are many people here who have spent many years. But we were there in a really weird time. It was the exact year that the United States attacked Iraq and removed Saddam Hussein from power. That was an unusual experience to be an expatriate in a time in which your nation's the aggressor in the eyes of many of the people that we were living around. And I recall at our church the pastor praying the most beautiful prayer for peace and specifically praying for Saddam Hussein. Now, I grew up in red state Oklahoma, southern Baptist God and country, flags on the stage, bless our boys kind of place. And that prayer, it impacted me. It impacted me to see, oh, this is what Jesus is talking about. Praying and seeking peace praying for our oppressors, praying for people that are evil. And we're going to see in the passage, we are in that category too. We are evil as well. 
Verse 29 continues with the illustration. If someone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one also. Culturally, this is less about violence than it is about offense. They think maybe the origins of it even comes from a religious context that if you said something that offended some of the, one of the religious leaders, they might slap you on the, on the cheek to sort of remind you that's offensive, you shouldn't say such a thing. And Jesus is saying here, less, if someone's aggressive to you, don't be aggressive back. He's really saying if someone offends you, don't feel the need to stand up for yourself. That's a, I kind of wish it was the first one. I don't get violently aggressed very frequently, but I get, I feel offended quite often. Our culture seems to train us to feel offended. The one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic. This is likely not so much, it, it is someone stealing something from you, but it's someone stealing something from you, and legally in that time, you had the right to never have to give up your, your inner garment. And Jesus here is saying, well, you just give them that one as well. This is a sort of a conversation about your rights, what you, what you ought to have deserved to you. And so in other words, Jesus is saying, if someone offends you, don't let it bother you. If someone takes your rights, don't let it bother you. Thirty, give to everyone who begs from you. From who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Those are our illustrations. Then we have really 31 as our second command in the text. So the first command is love your enemies. The second one is a statement of the golden rule, right? As you wish others would do to you, so you do to them. Then it jumps right back into further illustrations. And the second chunk of the passage is not just illustrations. And now Jesus is specifically moving into illustrations that say, hey, if you love in a certain way, you're no better than the sinners. So the family rule is to not just love your enemies, but to love in this sort of crazy love, this sort of radical, supernatural expectation. 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. 33, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. 34, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. The point being, the way that we love and interact with people outside our family huddle should be radical to the point that we're willing to love even when we're not expecting to get love back. We're willing to do good even when we're not expecting to get good done back. And we're willing to lend money. Why has he got to go to money? Why has he got to go to money? I got to hang out with a doctor early who's preaching next Sunday and we spent some time at Starbucks and I, I wished I had videotaped it because it was beautiful what he said because he said, he summarized this passage really well. I was like, hey, I might lay down a couple of thousand dollars to you because I know I'm going to get it back. Boy, am I going to lay down a couple of grand to someone who I know is never going to pay me back? That's exactly what the text is saying, right? Be willing to lay down a couple of grand to the dude that you know is never going to give it back to you. That's hard. There's something, I, I love that, right? It's, it's like Jesus, Jesus is really smart, obviously, right? So it's just, he's, he went away from sort of, oh yeah, do good, do good. And all of a sudden he hits us right in the wallet. Like, Jesus, why do you got to get into my wallet? Why do you got to get into my pocketbook, to my coin purse, right? Like just the, the very elements of where we really know that we love, he's saying, hey, there's the test, 
So we have illustrations and commands. That's basically the whole point. I'm going to leave the last two verses to the very end, but let's pause here and let's, let's, let's think a little bit about some interpretive helps to this particular passage, and I think they could apply to other passages generally as well. So as I worked through this, I came up with three keys or helps to both interpreting and applying this passage now. Okay, so these are our three helps, three keys. I didn't name them anything cool, so write down whatever you want. But these are things that help us think through the passage. The first one is, by all accounts, this entire chunk is hung off of verse 22. So look up to verse 22. In the, in, in the Beatitudes portion, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And so this sort of hatred that we're experiencing here and the sort of the way that people are treating us here seems to be helpful for us to realize, oh, we should primarily be thinking of this as People that are rejecting us, people that are cursing us, people that are offending us because of the name of Jesus, right? Primarily, primarily opposition to our faith. Now, it's not exhaustively that because when you think about the illustrations, I don't think the illustrations work where somebody comes and says, hey, that person believes in Jesus, I'm going to steal their property. Maybe, that might be happening. So I think that there's, it's, it's primarily to be viewed between, okay, uh, if these things are happening to you, you're being offended, you're being, you're, your rights are being suppressed because you're a Christian, this is how you should act. But I do think some of these things happen to us even not because we're Christians and we're still called to, exp to have the same sort of heart attitude. You can see that all of these, uh, these, these keys are going to help us realize that this passage is uh, not surprisingly, uh, with the teaching of Jesus, a lot more about the attitude of our heart than rule book for how to work through and navigate life's specific details. So the first key is understanding that this persecution, this hatred is coming to us primarily on account of Jesus. The second helpful interpretive key is that Jesus here is primarily interested in personal ethics, not public policy. Jesus here is, is talking to his disciples and to us by extension as how to be children of God and how to live in this kingdom. He's not like Plato. His, his goal is, unlike Plato, his goal is not how to build a republic. And so while the turn the other cheek is something we need to be thinking about and it's helpful, it's not necessarily alone the passage that we need to just think about if we're thinking about should our nation attack Nation X and just war theory and whatever else. Right? That's not specific. Now, no doubt there'll be applications and implications that will flow down because the point of the passage is be people of peace, but it's not primarily geared towards a public ethic. And I think that's helpful. We have police officers in our church. We have military personnel in our church. We have some of us, our children may enter into the military at some point. And it's helpful for us to realize uh, the Bible does have room for the magistrates to bring peace into places where peace does not exist. So that's our second helpful key. 
I think the third one is the trickiest one, so I want to spend a little bit of time in it because it, it, could be, it could allow for us to sort of deflate all of the pressure that we're currently feeling from the text, and, and I'm nervous about this, but I also, we need to say it. So the third interpretive key is that the language here, in some way at least, is hyperbolic. Now, I'm worried about that. It's true, but I'm worried about it because as soon as you say, well, Jesus is kind of overstating the case, then you can almost say, oh, okay, then I don't have to love my enemies then. That's not the point. The whole reason that Jesus is using somewhat hyperbolic language is to emphasize how important it is to love our enemies. But there comes with each of these a little bit of a, yeah, but in this instance, da, 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 da. and that's why we want to see these as illustrations of the big principle, love your enemy, rather than rule book for life. For example, I, I think about um, give everyone who begs from you, right? So uh, before the boys joined our family, um, we had just moved to Southern California, and I took I, my wife, I think, was back to Oklahoma, and I took my two daughters, and we decided we're going to do an L.A. City Day. And I remember reading this passage to them, give to everyone who begs from you. And we got a bunch of $1 bills, and we put them in my pocket, and we thought, this is going to be great. Every beggar that asked us, we're going to give them a dollar. Three hours later, we were, I've never seen little girls more disappointed that no one asked us for money. It got to the point that we were walking up to people and, and sort of like interacting with them and then we, we, we gave out all the money, but it was just sort of like I was expecting people to be hitting us up all day and it wasn't happening. And I was part of the point now, but there's a yeah, but here, right? There's hyperbolic language because if someone has asked money from you and you know they're going to use that for ill means, you don't have to give to them and then say, oh, Jesus says give to those who beg. Hyperbolic language. Yeah, but... My favorite yeah, but is uh, the one that says, oh, if someone takes your goods, don't demand them back. Jonathan Mills uh, works for our church, and many of you probably know this story, but in the last month or two, his vehicle was stolen. And it was gone for like a week. And the police finally found it, and we got it, it had like, you know, taco wrappers in it. It looks like someone had been like living in his vehicle. And I don't think that the application of this passage is for the elders to say, Jonathan... You didn't follow the teaching of Jesus. You wanted your car back after it was stolen. And Jesus says, if someone takes your goods, don't demand them back. And you're obviously not following the teaching of Jesus because you wanted your car back. Right? So the point being that this hyperbolic language is we've got to be people, the kind of people, the, the flavor of people as the children of God, the family rule, is that our heart is the such that if someone takes something from us, we're not fighting, we're not demanding we're not, we're not out to look exclusively for our own rights and to not be offended. We are the kinds of people who are willing to lay those things down. Doesn't mean that it's never right to want your goods back or never right to not give or any number of other things. I hope that those three are helpful. Those, those three are helpful for me as I try and I seek to apply these things to my own life and into my own heart. So we've done the who, which we didn't do. We've done a lot of the what, because that's what the most of the passage is talking about. And the last two we'll do relatively quickly. Uh, the third one is why. Why? Why should we love our enemy? I mean, if anything, that's probably the number one reason we don't do it, because we don't really get it. 
And I think one of the reasons that we don't get it is if we have an unrealistic or a utopian view of why I should love my enemies that's never going to actually be found and realized, then I'm going to give it up. So we might think, well, okay, I'm going to love my enemies so they'll love me back. Well, that's not going to last very long. They're enemies, <laughs> Right? We're not loving them in order to get something back from them. I think we as Christians do this one all the time. I don't think we ever really sort of write it out. But I think we'll sort of say like, yeah, I, I met with my coworker for a while and I was sharing the gospel with them and I was praying with them and I was trying to encourage them. Uh, but they never really became a Christian so I just kind of stopped. So what's the why there? If I love my enemy, they'll join my family. If I love them enough, they'll join my family. If they don't join my family, then I kind of, and I'm, I do this myself, so I'm not just pointing my face. It's sort, of, it's sort of like if you jump into our huddle, then we'll really love you. But I, spent, I gave you quite a bit of time. You didn't jump into our family huddle, so I don't really have to do that anymore. So that, that why is going to be frustrating because it's not going to happen. But the why that comes in the text is never going to disappoint. And this is what our last few verses are. We get a summary statement in 35. I love summary statements. I love, I, in any context, I love a summary statement, but particularly in the Bible. Summary statements, love them. 35, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. He hasn't said anything that we haven't already heard. Here's something new. It's not really new because it came up in 32 on, all the way through these last second half. Expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. This is the part that I mentioned earlier. It's helpful for us to remember this is a family rule because that verse taken out of context certainly does look like works righteousness, doesn't it? If I love people in a certain way and I turn the other cheek and I don't demand uh, that, that my rights get you know, whatever else that I can earn this reward and the reward being made a child of God. This is where interpreting Scripture with Scripture is very helpful because we know explicitly in the Bible that is not true. But I actually think that the interpretive keys help us to realize this. Oh, wait, wait, wait. This is a family conversation. Jesus is saying this to his disciples. There's probably a little bit of an already not yet here that we could kind of think through theologically. But primarily what's going on is this credit and reward is something he's already been talking about in this entire second half. Did you notice it? I read through it. I haven't commented on it yet. 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Talking about benefit. 33, if you do good to those who, good to you, who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? 34, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? All building towards this, hey, if you do this, you're going to get this reward. Benefit, benefit, credit, reward. Now, it's helpful for us to realize the family rule is to act in a certain way towards our enemies. And that in, love, in and of itself helps us to realize that the reward is not earning salvation, but it is something to do with the pleasure of God, our Father. Because God, our Father, loves it when we live in this world in the way that he's called us to live. Very helpfully, uh, one of the commentaries I think most of us who, are on, who have been preaching have been looking at is, is Daryl Bach's commentary. Uh, it's huge. It's two volumes. It's, it's, it's just, it's a, he's a real interesting character, and it's a very good book. Um, here's what he says about this reward. The reward is God's acknowledgement 
that he has seen this love and the faithfulness it reflects. It is the Father's pleasure at evidencing kinship with God. It's God's pleasure at the fact that the way that I'm acting with the world is proving and giving evidence that I'm a child of God. Reward is God's favor and blessing for doing what is noteworthy. It is not merit for salvation, but recognition of being a faithful son or daughter. So the pleasure that the father feels upon saying, well done, good and faithful servant, is the pleasure that God feels in this situation when we love our enemies well. That God's up there, he's feeling pleasure about that. We're following his advice. We're following the commands. And the reward is not, oh, I earned being a son. It's I earned the pleasure of my father, of which anyone who studies psychology will tell us is something we all need from our parents. So that helps us. It helps us to understand what that credit and that reward is. So the point being, the why is not, I do this in order to get something back here and now on earth, because it's only going to disappoint, which is why I'm going to finally give it up. I'm going to start hating my enemies again. The point is, it's supernatural. It's eschatological, right? That I love my enemies now so that my father will be pleased. That's inexhaustible. They're never going to hit that one. It will feel disappointing in the situations here and now, but it is not disappointing because of what the Father's love does. So finally, the how. And when I think about how here, and it's in the text, I think about, okay, imagine you say, okay, I want to love my enemies. I really do. I'm tired of hating them. But how how am I really going to be able to do this? How is it possible to love my enemies? That's the how that I have in mind. And I think Jesus is hinting at this through, not surprisingly, uh, reminding us of the mercy of the Father and therefore the gospel. So in this same summary passage, 35 and into 36, he says, uh, your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. So the how, how is this possible is a pretty short and easy explanation of, well, the how is it's possible to love our enemies because that's what God, through Jesus, did for us through the gospel. I actually really love the language here uh, that um, he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. It reminds me, in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you, being evil, give your children good gifts, how much more will the Father give good gifts? You can kind of imagine we're all like, wait, evil? Come on, Jesus. What do you mean, evil? And I love the, 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 the linkage here. I have a hard time sometimes. I know theologically I'm evil. But if I told, like, let's imagine I was, maybe a Dr. Early and I, as we were at Starbucks, people came and said, hey, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're about to go preach to those evil people about grace EV free. That seems like a strange thing to say about your congregation. It's true, but it seems like a strange thing to say. But we all know that we're ungrateful. There's not a soul here that thinks, oh, I'm, I'm pretty much grateful all the time. Pretty much always thankful in all circumstances. I got that one down. I don't think any of us say that. And in Romans 1, it's very clear that the heart of sin is not giving God glory or giving him thanks. So lack of thankfulness is evil, sinful. So God does what? God shows mercy and kindness to those who are ungrateful and evil. That's us. That's the children. That's the family. 
So how can we do this? We can do this because God has done it for us. And not only that, it's not just like, oh man, now I have to try to be like God. Well, I'm not you, God. No, no, no. You have the spirit within you. You have supernatural, right, juice to get you through it that you can lean into to say, wow, this is hard. I'm feeling offended. I want to fight back. I'm feeling my rights taken away from me because I'm a Christian and I want to fight back. But I have the spirit. And what I'm going to get by the pleasure of the Father far outpaces whatever it is I'm hoping to receive by hating my enemies. I want to say one final thing, and then and we'll close with a, a, a nice story. There are ways to sort of stand up for yourself without hatred, though, too, aren't there? So the whole point of the passage is don't hate your enemies. Love your enemies. So I do think there's, this is sort of that yeah, but. This is that hyperbolic language. There, but our job then is to navigate this with one another to say, how can we defend ourselves or stand up for ourselves in ways that are not fueling and propagating hateful speech and hate and, and just stirring one up, but actually out of love. And I don't think that's easy. In fact, I think that's probably pretty difficult. We have a historical example of someone who did this quite well, and many of you will, many of you will know the story and others have never even heard of the man, but it's probably the best name from the early church fathers is Polycarp. It's the best name. Polycarp was an early Christian he was an old man. He was very highly respected, very highly thought of, and everyone in the culture generally thought very nice things about Polycarp, but this was in the time period, just a few hundred years, when they were grabbing Christians and feeding them to the lions and burning them at the stake and all kinds of other things, and Polycarp's name came up. He was next on the list. The, re the writing about Polycarp, there's debates, it's not scripture, right, of how much of it is true and is not true, but if nothing else, it shows how well this lesson was picked up by early Christians because the ways that they talk about Polycarp are ways that show that the Lucan story of loving our enemies has been picked up very, very well. First of all, it says uh, that when Polycarp finds out that they're searching for him, right, the magistrates are out, they're trying to get you, he has uh, uh, other Christians or people are trying to sort of hide him in their homes, and one of the first things it says is says he he stayed there with friends, engaged in nothing else night and day but praying for all men. Wow, that's convicting. I'm guessing the all men there has to include the very enemies who are coming after him. He did nothing with his time but praying for all men. They finally catch up to him. And when they catch up to him, he's upstairs, the story says, and he's praying just like it says he's going to do. And the they show up with, as if they were coming for a, 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 a young person who was going to fight back, right? They, like when they came for Jesus, they had, their, they had their weapons, they had their armor, and they came out, and when they finally met him, they are like, wow, he's a really old man. Like, why are we coming after this really old man as if he's such a serious threat? And this is the part that's beautiful about the story, that Polycarp comes down, greets these people who are coming into his home to murder him, and they end up doing exactly that. And the passage, the writing says, he ordered that something eat and drink be set before them as much as they cared for while he asked them about an hour to pray. The enemies are at the door, literally to drag him away. And he greets them with food, with drink, with love, asking in return for a little bit more time to pray, after which 
they drag him in, and he's killed. We're not anywhere near that in our culture now, but certainly we have something we can learn from that about loving our enemies and asking for the Spirit's help. So let's do that now. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we need your help. We cannot do this alone. Um, We need help in discerning who our enemies are. On the one hand, we don't want to be naive and think we have no enemies, but on the other hand, I don't think that it's, it's good for us to, to roam the earth constantly looking for our enemies either. I feel like that does danger to our souls. So give us wisdom at discerning who our enemies are so that we can love them, so that we can face any persecution that comes upon us from being Christians with love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.